a movie podcast where some friends from Philadelphia come together to talk about all things movies. Now we have a very special recording of Butter With That for everybody today. Uh, Today we are discussing my pick for Thuds and Duds, X-Men Apocalypse, uh, which we actually recorded about a week ago, but lost half of the beginning of the recording due to just technical, unforeseen technical errors. I think it's kind of amazing, gang, that this is the first time in three years that we've had like a significant chunk of chunk of an episode gone. So I would say kudos to us for being lucky for three years, over three years. But also unlucky because this is like the most frustrating movie we've ever discussed. God, what couldn't this be for, oh, I don't know, like a, a Jurassic Park or adaptation or I don't know, something more interesting to kind of like, oh, a second chance to kind of dig our teeth into, but but how fitting, right? I feel like it was the X-Men universe created within Apocalypse that created the perfect storm for a technical malfunction. It was like, this movie sucks and is cursed. Therefore, any attempt to discuss it, analyze it, mention it will also be cursed. I think it's appropriate, unfortunately for us. <laughs> I'm happy you have that perspective, Christine. <laughs> And thank you for bringing optimism to the to the group and to the recording. Uh, well, we do have to kind of talk about about the first third, I guess, of X-Men Apocalypse again. I am thrilled to be with everybody tonight and thrilled to just be chatting about a movie in general. But before we dive into that, do we want to just do a quick kind of recap of what we've been watching and if anybody you know, want to touch on last time? So any kind of thing new from the last time we talked or touching on, you know, what... What movie you brought last time to the beginning segment? Um, I have been um, have been uh, checking out some stuff that I haven't gotten to uh, from like the '90s, and one that I got to recently was 1991's *The Last Boy Scout*, that starring Bruce Willis and Damon Wayans, uh, sort of a like you know like a rush hour esque buddy cop action movie. If this movie didn't hate women so much, and it really does. Then it would be a five-star action movie because everything that doesn't center around Bruce Willis and his family or uh, a very young Halle Berry being, spoiler alert, slain very early into the film without much development, uh, then everything else would be like just uh, basically Die Hard with a Vengeance before it's time and way, way more violent. (laughs) And some of the action sequences and set pieces are crazy. There is a... Uh, a man, uh, Damon Wayans, his character, who rides a horse onto a football field during a football game to interrupt an assassination attempt. And it is the second most exciting and crazy sequence on a football field in the movie. So I would say that uh, though it's uh, painful to watch at times, at, at other times I was screaming at my TV with like pure action cinema joy. So a mixed bag, but uh, one that I would lightly recommend. Nice. Sounds interesting and it, it, i think it's funny when movies get hung up on like one specific point of you're like who hurt you writer screenwriter like why is oh, this it, the like the, the hat to hang the hook to hang your hat on it was shane black who wrote it and it was uh, he was recently divorced it was shane black shane black uh provided us with things like a uh, lethal weapon and um oh. last action hero and some Got other it. stuff 
Got it. Iron it's Man it's 3. very like every line is uh, it's like an action quip, which is satisfying and exhausting. And he was in Predator. Is he? Who's he in Predator? He's in like just one of the guys in the helicopter. What? And he that's has like two awesome. lines. I'm pretty sure because that's why. And he and he did the new movie, which sucked apparently. Yeah, that movie's bad. Sam or Christine, any uh, films or TV or just anything you've been watching or checking out? I don't even remember what I brought up last time. It is like I just deleted all of that information. I I didn't live it. Who knows? Uh, but what I am watching currently is my best friend's dog. His name is Carson. Um, so if you hear barking uh, throughout this, you'll know who it is. Rest assured, viewers, Carson is very cute. Listeners, I guess, listeners. Welcome to the show, Carson. So cute. Uh, I think I talked last week about seeing House Gucci, which was fun. Lady Gaga's performance. Like, I have no assessment about how insulting it is. <laughs> All I can say, it was it was uh, pretty fun to watch. But a movie I did want to bring up that I just watched last night, which was very surprisingly good, was a movie called Five Fingers. They remade it in like 20... 20- 10 with Lawrence Fishburne and Ryan Philippe. Don't watch that one. <laughs> watch the 1952 Five Fingers starring James Mason. It's like a World War II espionage spy thriller that's super tight. It's written by Joseph Mankiewicz and it is a really taught, really well scripted and written film. And all the exterior shots are, are shot on location in Ankara and Turkey. And it's wild. And James Mason is great. Um, so that's what I have to report. Nice. Last week, I talked about uh, rewatching Get Out for the first time in a couple of years. Definitely, it's a movie that I think really sticks with you. I'm still thinking about it after my second time viewing. And I think it still you know, holds up in 2022 after, you know, sometimes I feel like some films like that maybe are like best in the place and time they come out in. But I still think uh, years later, Get Out still feels incredibly relevant. Uh, with what Peel was going, Jordan Peel was going for, and I'm very excited for his movie Nope coming out in a few months. Also with Daniel Kaluuya, so I think that's going to be a great one, and I'll probably see anything and everything that Jordan Peel writes or directs. I think that's a uh, uh, listen, listeners won't know that, but uh, it's it's. I think uh, that's a almost pitch perfect description as uh, what you provided last time. So good memory. <laughs> think it is you know it's all you know my head's like a bag of marbles and sometimes when you shake it the same one comes out all right well let's dive into this garbage fire of a movie um again again again. going back it's interesting going back to the beginning because i just must sound so defeated at the end of this episode Uh, i just remember i have a note that says audibly sigh which dave covered for me seconds before i was going to uh so i guess spoiler alert for that one part um I don't know, an hour down the line or a little less from this moment. But I'm curious to see if we'll gain any new insights or revelations of the X-Men apocalypse. Um, Usually I have all of my nice notes about box office and everything like that. Don't have that with me today. It's been one, uh, one heck of a Wednesday. But I think that just means let's just dive right into 2016's X-Men apocalypse uh, directed by Brian Singer, who is a monster. Um, I don't, you know, part of our, I think, thuds and duds idea is like revisiting kind of movies. That's like some, one angle that we've picked, uh, some of you have picked to kind of go at this theme. Uh, that definitely hurts rewatches that Brian Singer is just a pedophile. I don't think we need to harp on that point too much, but 
I think it's just worth noting that he's made some good movies. This is a hundred percent, not one of his good movies, but um, just a shame that people have to be terrible. I think that's just, you know, and we'll cover that more next week. I'm sure. Um, uh, a little bit. And uh, box office figures on that budget of 178 million with a gross of uh, 543 million. And I believe out of the whole X-Men franchise, you know, the Fox X-Men franchise, it sits uh, ninth domestically and fifth of all time, somewhere around there. So made money, but not as much money as, you know, Deadpool one or two um, Logan or, you know, X2. Um, the fact that this came out in 2016, I don't think I recognized that last time. It makes so much sense, right? If we're like really pointing to things that really turned the tide to this hellscape that we're living in, maybe X-Men Apocalypse was one of those things. I, th- I think there's a lot of <laughs> maybe some more prominent things, but that being uh, that being it could be them, one of yeah, them. It gets in the mix for sure. I feel comfortable calling it one of the seven seals. That was the apocalypse that was broken. Maybe the, not the first one, probably one of the first few in 2016. And I think we can all know what the last broken seal was in 2016. Well, X-Men Apocalypse, let's dive in. So this movie spans millennia, spans continents, and we begin in the Nile Valley, 3600 BC. Now, this movie has about four opening scenes which i think just gets into one of the biggest problems of this movie is that it just wants to try to do it all but not in an admirable way just in like a put this character and put that character and put this in like it just feels like it's trying to just stuff the movie to like keep it interesting when i think all of these introductions just really weigh the movie down like ultimately i think it's really hard to pick a protagonist of this film, somebody who is, and not that you necessarily have to do your three-act structure, hero's journey, rise, fall, you know, et cetera. But it helps when you have some sort of structure and a character's focal point to look on because it's certainly not Apocalypse. It's certainly not Professor X, Cyclops, Magneto. It's kind of just a whole malaise of characters. It's sort of like you're trying to build a puzzle and someone keeps coming by and adding pieces from a different puzzle and being like, well, wait, how am I going to make this work? I think that's a really great analogy. So we open with a procession in ancient Egypt. The people of Egypt are bowing down and chanting the name En Sabanur, uh, which is ancient Egyptian language for apocalypse, who is a powerful being. He's kind of shrouded. He's got all this kind of metallic armor on. Uh, he's brought into the pyramid by his four horsemen, and they begin a process to transfer in Sabiner's consciousness into the body of a younger successor. And I should mention that Apocalypse is played by Oscar Isaac, and this is the only time in the movie where we see Oscar Isaac without the horrible purple makeup on. Um, in a bad way, Oscar Isaac gets lost <laughs> in the suit, where I think it really is at the detriment of his performance. So just one brief shot of an unaltered Oscar Isaac. And we also get the first of Apocalypse's powers. As a mutant who can absorb the powers of other mutants, essentially that's kind of his shtick, not in a rogue way, but in kind of a different way. Uh, He only shows a few powers in this movie. So transferring his consciousness is a big one. And basically that's how Apocalypse has been able to live. He's lived for millennia and millennia, master of the world, because he can just keep transferring his consciousness. 
So as this process is happening, there's the pyramid, it lights up, and you know, it's all <clears throat> technological process, I suppose. So as the sun hits the top of the pyramid, outside the citizens of Egypt, the guards, they turn on apocalypse and they send these massive pillars sliding down into the pyramid to basically destroy the entire structure <clears throat> to trap Ensabinur and his four horsemen. Meanwhile, Can I, the horsemen. Uh, interject right there. Yeah, go ahead. I didn't mention this last time, but once you mentioned it now, I was reminded that actually the pyramid sledding scene was pretty dope. All I didn't, I might, maybe I wasn't paying attention, or maybe the movie actually didn't have this unfold in a logical way. But suddenly when those dudes were like riding down the slope or like, or no, the trap doors open, somehow they're like riding on stone to the center, like bringing everything down. I was like, how did we get to this? But also this is a lot of fun. I was, I was, I was into that. I what a great way to bring down a pyramid, right? Yeah, I guess they convinced the engineers to build it in those tunnels with some reason that could potentially destroy the structural integrity of the pyramids. I guarantee you there is no pyramid sledding scene in any other movie ever made. It's quite a pyramid scheme. Oh. So a fight ensues. These just normal ass guards with their swords attempt to destroy these very powerful mutants. Ultimately, this uh, structure is collapsing. Their plan is succeeding. But Horseman, who in the credits is called Death, manages to form a protective shield around uh, the successor body of Oscar Isaac, shielding him as the pyramid collapse, I guess, deep into the earth. Uh, so, and Sabanur remains trapped inside beneath the rubble. So this is our kind of cold open, the kickoff to the movie, helping us understand who the villain is and kind of help sets up the time-spanning nature of Apocalypse, the character, and also of this film. But next we're treated to, Dave, I think you mentioned it was one of your favorite parts of the movie, the time title sequence. Oh, yeah, we're, we're thrust through human history. And what I described in the last episode, I believe, is a Zack Snyder Winamp Windows media player. Yeah, we're just sort of thrust through human history in this weird tunnel kind of shape. And it walks us through history and uh, iconically includes a big iron eagle in the swastika. And the swastika is ultimately destroyed in allusion to the end of the war. But at the same time, they're just like details that, well, I, I mean, I guess it makes allusions to it later uh, that we'll cover. But yeah, it's just a strange uh, way to thrust us through time as opposed to, I, I don't know, it, it provides an interesting way to execute the title sequence, but it is also kind of crazy and a bit much. And I think by 2016, that just felt very like old school. Like, I think the uh, Spider-Man 2 does it really well, where it's like just concept art kind of style of the first movie as they're doing the intro scene with like webs coming across. And so all the X-Men movies have this like flourish in the beginning of like the credit scene. So kind of antiquated way. And hey, at least it gets us to 1983, which is now our second opening scene in the movie we are in ohio in a high school classroom discussing the events of 10 years earlier in the x-men this fox x-men timeline where eric lencher magneto played by um the really great michael fassbender uh, was uh, attacked a peace summit in paris tried to kill nixon but ultimately mystique played by jennifer lawrence stopped him so now last time we talked you know the recording that was lost. We talked a little bit about kind of our relation to the X-Men movies, 
Uh, Christine, this was sort of one of your, this is one of the few, Dave and Christine, one of the few X-Men movies that you've seen, correct? Some familiarity with the original trilogy, but then not much else of the stuff outside of X-1, 2, and 3. Yeah, and this re-record gives me an opportunity to not make the same mistake that I did before, which was think that X-Men was part of the DC universe. It's Marvel, which now I know. But yeah, I think it's still in there. (laughs) Oh, fuck. Well, at least I'll preempt it. People will hear this before they hear my mistake later. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, I watched the first two like way back when with the, you know, OG Ian McKellen and uh, uh, all of those other people. And I loved those, but have not seen any of these new iterations of X-Men. Yeah, I'd seen X1 and 2, I think, in theaters. Um, and really liked them at the time, but kind of like by the end of the second one, it was a little burned out already. <laughs> Even though I liked them, I was just kind of like, I'm going to let this sit for a while. And and I never got to seeing the third of the original uh, trilogy. And then a while later, I saw Days of Future Past, which I believe is the second installment in this prequel trilogy. Um, so this is the fourth of them I've seen. And uh, I've liked all of them except this one. <laughs> We uh, also covered Logan in a previous Butter with that episode, which recommend you check out, which kind of exists so good. in this world, but it's not important. And then, Sam, you are familiar with pretty much all the X-Men movies, right? Oh, yeah. X-Men and I have a long history, and I love them very much. They mean a lot to me. So sorry I picked the maybe probably the worst X-Men movie then. It's that and Last Stand, the third X-Men movie. I think in my... I haven't seen X3 in a while, but... Is it's that bad. bad? Wow. Uh, yeah. It's I, the uh, same I, movie. It's it's the same. Somehow they did it again. What? <laughs> At least Magneto has more to do in that movie. Somewhat more to do. Anyway, this is not. Um, maybe one day we'll talk about X3, but <laughs> Sam saying no. So that's kind of where we all sit. Um, some familiarity, but you know, some of us approaching this movie kind of new with the new eyes. So we are kind of, so I, I brought that up because we get a very quick exposition dump about where we are in the franchise. So for folks who are unaware, there was X-Men First Class directed by Matthew Vaughn that takes place during the Cuban Missile Crisis in the 1960s. It's a great movie. Days of Future Past takes place in the 70s, also directed by Brian Singer. Then this movie takes place in the 80s and Dark Phoenix, the next one takes place in the 90s. So every movie, you know, Days of Future Past, this, and the next one, they kind of have to catch you up on what happened in the past 10 years. And they kind of like Forrest Gump it, which I never realized until now. <laughs> you know, oh God, that, you're, you're 100% right. Yeah, exactly. So we learn a little bit about what happened in Days of Future Past. Magneto tried to kill Nixon, take over the world, etc. Mystique stopped him and is now, she's a hero among mutant kind. One of the students, Scott Summers, played by Ty Sheridan, uh, he was in Ready Player One, um, complains that his eyes are hurting. A classmate mistakes him for winking at his girlfriend, and then te- and he has to go to the bathroom, and the teacher says, oh, you're going to the principal's office because you're causing a disruption. You know where that is, right? Yep. Well, Cyclops instead goes to the bathroom, hides in the stall. That same classmate is going to bully, tries to keep bullying him and beat him up. Scott then opens his eyes to release a powerful optic blast that knocks the kid against the wall and does damage to the rest of the bathroom, probably killing this kid. I had to put money on it, or at least breaking many bones. I like how we never find out. I think it's gone. Yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, that kid endured a lot. 
And I agree, Sam. Why didn't we get any at least follow up? You know, this is a family movie. <laughs> Pretty cool scene, I'll say though. I do actually like that that bit. I agree. The whole bathroom like laser scene is really well done, which makes me think that I think later on, maybe I argue that if the movie had been contained within the X mansion, that could have been a cool movie. But also I would also have watched a movie that was just within a high school, like X-Men High, you know, like, well, I guess they're the reason they're brought to the X mansion is because they can't really exist in like, like. Mm-hmm their exit like regular schools so retract point retract uh there's there's a there's a great animated show that was my entry into the x-men world and that's x-men evolution which is on cartoon network i think from like 2004 to 2006 or 7 something like that and so it is they live at the xavier school for gifted students but attend public school so you do get a lot of that kind of high school moment i think it's a great animated show it's um covers a lot apocalypse is in that show at the end um so it covers a lot of beats that you know are very popular with like x-men canon but i think it's a really good like young adult introduction to the x-men christine i think the movie you're thinking of is x-men first class <laughs> it's very much like that oh really like them existing in okay great the movie in, in is already way. made perfect then i'll have to go watch it and I think this scene is a great introduction to Cyclops and to Scott Summers and of like, you know, a classic introduction of kid who's kind of bullied, kid who doesn't quite fit in, angsty, the powers trigger and manifest in a really destructive manner. A lot of X-Men stories that are kind of like that. But unfortunately, Cyclops is not the main character of this movie. In fact, he kind of gets forgotten. Um, as much as I love James Marston, he was Cyclops in the original trilogy. Um, they also do a terrible job with Cyclops in that trilogy. The way that he dies. I, <laughs> not to spoil it, but like, what the fuck? Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Yeah, they 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 did him really dirty in that movie. And this one too. And you would, yeah, I don't, won't get on my high horse about the structure and, you know, this movie because we got to get to another opening scene. There's no time to waste. So we've met Apocalypse. We've met Cyclops now. We're traveling to West Berlin, where a crowd is gathered in the secret location to witness uh, a mutant angel fighting a large fat mutant who's probably Blob in this cage fighting setting. Um, after taking him out, Angel prepares to fight the next challenger who people, you know, this, this box is brought in. There's a person locked inside and it's revealed to be Nightcrawler, played by Cody uh, Smith McPhee. Uh, Nightcrawler has the ability to teleport as far as he can see, perhaps, uh, but within the cage, it's electrified, so you know, he can't escape from there. And so they fight or they die, essentially how it goes. So I think this is also kind of a cool opening, this like idea of like mutant cage fighting. But I think just once again gets to the issue of there's just a lot that this movie's trying to accomplish. And it really can't flesh out any of these cool ideas that it's setting up. I think I said last time, and I stand by it, like, this, like, Mad Max Thunderdome introduces us to a Thunderdome and doesn't use it <laughs> very much. I mean, obviously, in, in Thunderdome, it does to a degree, but it doesn't come up again, and it's not, like, the, the central focus of the film. And, yeah, this just comes and goes. It's such a cool concept as, like, just kind of our third opening, as you said. So, like, yeah, it doesn't feel like it's 
it invests a lot of interest in what is a pretty cool concept, which is, you know, one of the many wasted opportunities in this movie. Yeah, I think just like with a whole movie about X-Men in high school, you could also have a whole movie about, okay, X, you know, um, mutants are known in the world. So, of course, they're going to people and probably mutants themselves will want to profit off of their physical prowess in these kind of fighting settings. It's also just occurred to me, it's interesting that this exists as like it's established that mutants are fighting in a cage for people's entertainment. But later on in the first one, Wolverine, a mutant, is fighting as a man in a cage. And no one's like, wait a minute. It seems like he's really good at this. Maybe he's one of the mutants from the past in the scenario where we used to have mutants in cages fighting. No, I don't worry about it because this movie's not worried about any of the original movies anyway. Dave, I'm so happy you brought that point up right now because this movie and this series give no fucks about continuity in any way, shape, or form. This movie takes place about 15 years before X-Men 1. As you'll hear about later, I think it'd be very difficult for the world to forget about everything that happened in 1983 in this timeline. But, hey, Fox didn't give a fuck. Brian Singer didn't give a fuck. Simon Kimber didn't give a fuck. So we got this fucking dog pile. Dog shit pile of a movie. <laughs> wow, a dog pile of a movie. <laughs> a dog pile of dog shit. Oh. Sorry, Carson, if you're listening. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> So while this fighting is happening, Mystique has made it in and she's in her Jennifer Lawrence human form because Jennifer Lawrence hates wearing the makeup. Um, and she increases the voltage of the cage. Nightcrawler manages to take down uh, Angel by pinning him against the cage, frying his wings. And with Mystique's help, Nightcrawler escapes this hidden area wherever it is. Now on to scene number four, because we got to check in with one of the main characters of this franchise, Magneto. Eric Lenscher, after almost killing Richard Nixon, now lives in Poland under the name of Henrik Gorski. He works at a metal factory looking like a badass, and he has a wife and a daughter. Um, And they live a nice little happy life in Poland, kind of hidden away. It turns out that his daughter Uh, Nina is also a mutant. She appears to have the ability to talk to animals. And as Eric is putting his daughter to bed, Nina asks for a bedtime story. And, you know, Eric tells a story that he heard from his parents. She asks what happened to them. And Eric explains how his parents were taken away from him as he looks on his Auschwitz tattoo that's still visible on his arm, um, which we will cover. The ramp, you know, the setup, this, this Auschwitz setup that Brian Singer and Simon Kinberg have uh, laid at the beginning of this movie. I'll bet, as we discussed when we last recorded, it's handled quite tastefully. (laughs) The most tasteful approach. So this movie, I think, as we mentioned, it really tries to juggle a lot. And I do think the stuff with Magneto in Poland does work well. Like there are good ideas in this movie, but it just, anything that's of interest just gets uh, sapped of all energy, sapped of all momentum, just for the sake of plot, just for the sake of moving characters around the chessboard for the sake of the movie without actually kind of like feeling character motivation. So now after checking in with Magneto, we now cut back to Cyclops. Uh, Scott's brother, Havoc, who's played by Lucas Till, he was actually in X-Men First Class, Um, takes him to Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters. Now, in this 
canon. I believe Havoc would be in his like late forties and Scott is like 16 years old. So already it's like, why even bother doing the, the decade time jump when it's just totally unnecessary. And the actors are not aged up at all of how they would actually look. So Cyclops is brought to the famous schools. Um, he is introduced to Hank McCoy slash Peace, played by Nicholas Holt, uh, who works at the school. And then he also bumps into Jean Grey, played by Game of Thrones' Sophie Turner, a telepathic mutant. And they just have just the most awkward interaction. Man, I don't know what... I, I think Simon Kimberg just forgot how to write characters with like really like authentic dialogue and interaction. Um, I feel like Every time characters are talking to each other, it just sounds so forced and stilted. And I know they're trying to do the thing where they set up where Cyclops and Jean Grey are going to like fall in love, be an item, be a couple. But man, this scene was just so, so painful to watch. It's like a telepathic meat cute gone awry. <laughs> yes. Way to sum it up. I think this is an example of like writers thinking that that the audience who are really familiar with these characters in this franchise can just fill in all the blanks. And that's really lazy writing. It's like, oh, well, everyone already knows where this relationship is going to go. So we don't actually have to do the work, as you said, Connor, to compellingly bring these characters together, create a meet cute that isn't just like vomit inducingly like lame, but it's like, yeah, it's, it's everyone kind of knows the trajectory. And so they're like, oh, well, we can just plant little seeds without developing anything, and it'll be totally fine because everyone can fill it in from there. Yeah, this movie really is expecting the comics and people who love the comics to like, and the other movies to do a lot of the emotional heavy lifting for a plot that's so fucking stupid. Well, <laughs> like, it's, it's I guess, I'm obliterating the other movies. Mm hmm. Yeah, just with zero regard for what came after and, like, what people liked about what came after. Like, yeah, this movie is just baffling. Chronologically, yeah. Within the canon. Um, And so there's also, in this scene, I just got to bring it up, where Scott learns twice that Gene's a telepath. Like, he just looks also really stupid. He's like, oh, my God, someone's in my mind. She's like, well, I'm a, I'm a telepath. See a Scott. It's like, I didn't tell you my name. I'm a telepath, Scott. And you're just like, what? How, did, how did that make it past the Google, the, the Word doc on the computer? I guess it's like a combination of trying to rely on your audience to fill things in and also thinking your audience is dumb as shit and like having to remind them of stuff. And it's like, you don't need to remind people if you've introduced this vital detail about a particular character. Right. So Alex slash Havoc now brings his brother Scott to Professor Charles Xavier, played by James McAvoy. Now, casting has really not is not the problem with these Fox X-Men movies, uh, I think, especially the uh, getting uh, McAvoy and Fassbender to be Xavier and Magneto. Absolute amazing casting. And they do really great work in the first two of these kind of prequel movies. And so it's just a shame to see a great actor just wasted in two really terrible movies, Apocalypse and then later Dark Phoenix. Now, Xavier, he's flowing some luscious locks because he's not bald yet. Just just you wait uh, to see that happen. And so he is teaching a class. We see him talking with some students. Then he wants to see what 
Scott is capable of. Scott removes his bandages that he has around his eyes because he doesn't yet wants to doesn't want to hurt anybody else. And he ends up splitting a tree that Charles's grandfather planted in some kind of joking moment. Um, he is highly impressed, and Xavier says that Scott is enrolled into the school. So we got a little little more addition to kind of what's going on with Scott and Cyclops in this movie. Now we come back to Raven, who brings Nightcrawler to another unnamed location where he sees, uh, where we meet a mutant named Caliban, who is helping other mutants to create fake IDs, passports, and just other forms of identification. We've actually met Caliban before on the Butter With That podcast, played by Stephen Merchant in Logan. So not the first time we've talked about this character. Um, He doesn't have a whole lot to do in this movie, but just another uh, casting, you know, I don't know. I guess in canon, it, it can work, but we see have two appearances from Caliban at this Fox X-Men franchise. I was very proud when I recognized him. One of the only characters, well, no, I mean, all the mains, I was like, okay, I know who this is, but Caliban, Caliban was like, I know exactly who that is. We talked about Logan previously. Now, this whole scene is also just a, another confusing scene where you have a teleporter nightcrawler, but... I guess Mystique is trying to smuggle him or he does get a passport photo taken. So this whole scene is just so confusing of just, I guess of just pure plot mechanics of nothing. That's like informing really character at all. A mutant who can travel by picturing it in their mind, wherever they want is struggling to get a passport. (laughs) And even if like he can't travel across continents, like still like hop on a boat, zap onto something like it's just like it which is uh, you know brian singer directed x2 which uh nightcrawler's played by alan cumming and it's one of the best superhero movie opening sequences where nightcrawler's zapping through the white house and so at one point in time he really got the look of nightcrawler and like how it works and the mechanics of it and alan cumming does a really great job portraying that character in x2 when this character is just totally wasted and ultimately pretty much useless an X-Men apocalypse. Now we cut back to ancient Egypt on meeting another new character named Moyer McTaggart, who's played by uh, Rose Byrne. Moyer McTaggart was actually in uh, X-Men First Class. At the end of that movie, she has her memory wiped by Xavier. Um, She discovers a hidden underground chamber that leads to the resting place conveniently of Ensabanur. There's a group of his followers reciting a chant, uh, through some rocks that McTaggart moved, sunlight shines on the top of the pyramid, uh, and this triggers, um, you know, basically reviving Apocalypse to his full power. Um, we see sunlight. Yeah, go ahead. I'm so sorry, Connor. Do we know why she's there? She's investigating this cult of Insabinur, which has conveniently popped up. Okay. I was like, did I miss something, or did they not really fully flesh out, like, why she well i guess you later on kind of get a sense of like she's on the case but she just randomly pops up and seems to know exactly where to go what rug or something to like uh pull pull out or like i don't know it seemed really really strange that everything seemed to fall into place and we're given no context as to like how she ended up there but that's just me well it's really a movie of convenience of where everybody Indeed. exists Indeed. to serve the plot. Where it's like, yeah, oh, this random cult that popped up, she just happens to find their meeting place and it just happens to move a rock that just happens to trigger 
you know, the resurrection of Apocalypse. So not even the main antagonist really, you know, is brought back by a choice that a character made or some mistake that our protagonist made. No, it's just a rock moved and sunlight shined on it. If Moira McTaggart was never there, Apocalypse probably would have stayed hidden and submerged uh, for the rest of time. Yeah, so little of this movie is characters making choices to to shape the plot, which is the hallmark of any good story. <laughs> and I'm not saying everyone's got to follow the same formula, but formulas exist for a reason to at least start with. So, Man. amen. More Taggart escapes. She kills everybody else as a result of her moving the rock to trigger the uh, the cave in. And Apocalypse is free. Now, this earthquake is felt around right, the also, world. Also, once again, like, American intervention or wherever she's from, just, like, completely <laughs> fucking everything up, whether it's through, like, archaeological investigation or historic investigation, time after time, that pretty much sums up <laughs> the idiocy of, yeah. It belongs in a museum. It, right, exactly, right. <laughs> All encapsulated in that scene. So, you Much know. better movie, though. <laughs> oh, I wish we were talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Someday. <laughs> so this explosion triggers an earthquake that's felt around the world, it seems, uh, including Poland, where Magneto's working. Uh, he is operating a large vat of molten metal that falls and nearly crushes a man. However... Eric manipulates the vat to save the man and is seen by some of his co-workers. Dun, dun, dun. Now we cut back to Xavier's school. It's nighttime. The students feel that something's wrong. Perhaps Jean is like giving people, you know, Jean's having nightmares and perhaps that's manifesting in some of the other students. I think that point's a little unclear. Um, Charles goes to Jean's room, tells the other students to go back to bed. When in Jean's room, he finds that she's trembling um, Charles looks inside her head and sees what she's dreaming of. Visions of chaos and destruction. Visions of the end of the world. Jean then awakens and claims that she saw the end of the world and she fears for her powers. But Charles tells her it's going to be okay because he was scared of his powers once too. Then back to Egypt. <laughs> I, well, also really quickly, I never really, it just occurred to me, I never really thought about how Xavier's power to tap into people's minds at any given time is sort of like inherently horrible i mean he uses it to good ends and is a well-intentioned and righteous and moralistic man but that's a fucked up power oh it's invasive as fuck yeah <laughs> and we'll, we'll talk about cerebro in a few minutes but i think that's also like he is a one-man surveillance state global surveillance state essentially yeah yeah thank god he's one of the good guys right <laughs> mr wayne after i leave you should destroy this <laughs> <laughs> So now we're back in Egypt. So Egypt, Poland, North America, you know, New York, and then back to Egypt. We meet another main character, like sort of main character, Aurora Monroe, or Storm, played by Alexander Shipp, very famous comics character, uh, who uses the power of weather to manipulate a brief sandstorm that allows her to rob two men. They chase after her. Uh, and Apocalypse sees this happening. I should also mention that Apocalypse is currently wandering around Cairo, hearing the radio, has a big goofy hood and robes over him, and is just very confused. That's a whole other movie just, like, waiting to happen. Just, like, watching Apocalypse just try to just go through his day-to-day tasks, unfamiliar with the modern world in which he currently exists. Like, 
why not have turned the movie just into like a, a really fun, simple uh, fish out of water slapstick comedy? I would have signed up for that. <laughs> it's kind of literally like, I forget what the name of the movie is, but like Hitler somehow comes back and is dealing with the modern world and like trying to navigate it with his like historical ignorance of like modern technology, but then rises to power again. <laughs> Like trying to navigate the like contemporary like political machinations of power. It's like, well, how do I go about do what is this social media I can control? See, but instead, we we learn how he learns it through uh, a television. Very oh soon. right, yeah, he absorbs it all. Great scene. <laughs> Keep going, Connor. <laughs> so apocalypse after his wandering through Cairo, being very confused. Sees just conveniently sees this robbery happening. Notes notices also that Storm is manipulating this just sandstorm that didn't seem too supernatural to me or you know power based. Um, he follows them and the Apocalypse follows them and he uses his own power to decapitate the three other men with sand. We now see power number two, manipulation of sand, and then power number three. Meshing people into walls. It's kind of like a Wishmaster movie. Wishmaster meets the yeah. mummy. <laughs> Both of which are much better than this movie, by the way. Oh my god, that's so right. Oh, that's too funny. So Apocalypse Save Storm. Then we cut back to Poland, where Eric tells his wife Magda that they need to leave after thinking that he's been exposed. Uh, they call for their daughter, Nina. She's not in the room, not in the house, not in the yard. Eric hears a noise in the woods and him and his wife follow. Nina is being held by an officer, police officer, leading a group of other police officers who are not wearing any metal. They confront Eric regarding the incident at the factory, as well as his identity as Magneto at the White House a decade earlier. He confesses to it and pleads for Nina to be let go. Nina is then released, goes back to her mother. Eric goes to join the police officers to turn himself in to save his family. But his daughter yells at the men to not take her father away, just like people in authority took her grandparents away, Eric's parents away. And birds start attacking the police officers, causing you know, chaos ensues. And these officers have a noose and bow and arrows because they can't bring guns or any metal weapons with them. And one officer just casually, accidentally lets one arrow loose, which impales both Nina and Magda, killing them both instantly. I think we devoted quite a good chunk to this scene justifiably so because this double arrow death i mean double human single arrow death is just absolutely ridiculous it's like I, the jfk I, magic arrow yeah oh my god i was laughing pretty hard and this was supposed to be like the gut punch scene of like the first third of the movie and i just i was like it did somebody actually wrote and then a single arrow pierces both like daughter and mother at the same time, killing them instantly. Was, I bet this was core to Simon Kinberg's vision. And like and, what should be a really compelling scene with a character in Magneto who we've had since 1999, I think is when the first movie came out. So we have decade, you know, a decade and a half, two decades of experience with this character. 
And the scene is just so utterly ridiculous. Why couldn't you have everybody accidentally fire arrows or some other way or her powers inadvertently make some there? I feel like there's a hundred different ways where the scene could have resulted in their deaths and they pick the stupidest way. Also, we know so much about Magneto's story and we're introduced to his wife and daughter that he's supposedly, you know, obviously is very connected to as his family, but like that we meet in one scene before this happens in the entire series. Like how this doesn't have any real weight. Just like that arrow. There's no weight. Yeah. So this whole scene just falls really emotionally flat, which sucks because the aftermath, the immediate aftermath of this death is I think really visually cool which is then also sandwiched by another really terrible moment. Uh, Eric runs over to his family and cries. Nina has this necklace. I believe it's of Eric's parents. Or no, it's of or them. I kind of forget the exact details. So he takes off... Yeah, something like that. And he takes off Nina's necklace and uses it as a high-powered projectile, slitting the throats of all the police officers. Pretty rad. Yeah, I mean, this is just... This is some, like, of Magneto at his best. This was my, sorry, this was my favorite scene. When this happened, okay, the double death single arrow happened, but then killing 10 people with one necklace happened. And I was like, that's really rad and cool. Let's have more of that and less of the former. And then, we, yeah, it's like, this is like Magneto is brutal. He is capable of just killing people at the drop of a hat in pretty brutal ways and the and all of the movies find you know most of the movies i should clarify find pretty clever ways to use magneto's magnetism power with some pretty visceral and striking effect i believe it's an x2 when mystique injects metal into his prison guard and he knows that this plot's happening and so he sucks the metal out of the prison guard's blood to like break himself out of prison so yeah, these movies rad. Yeah, that's one of the best X-Men, you know, cinematic X-Men scenes ever. And so there's a glimmer of it here. And doesn't that make a movie worse when there's glimmers of hope and like glimmers of like kind of cool stuff happening? But Dave, I know your favorite moments next once he's killed all the officers. Yes, he is uh, stricken by uh, the death of his wife and child who we met 20 minutes ago in one scene. And he, uh, he he's cradling them as... Almost like without his his full attention, he's just slaying all these other guys. But based on his his instinct and utilizing his, his mutant power to kill them, and then just as as he cradles uh, his dead family that again we don't know anything about, and all the police officers fall to the ground. He just turns to the sky and shouts, "Is this what I am?" There's a lot of man versus God kind of action going on in here. People yelling to the skies, yelling to the clouds. A lot of it's done by Apocalypse, but Magneto gets his moment here too to scream at, scream in the face of God. Actually, it might not have been a scream. It might have been more humble than that, but either way, it's a bad line. No, it was a scream. I'm, I'm pretty sure that he screamed to the heavens. That's how I want to remember it anyway. So unfortunately, there's this really interesting... Magneto short film trapped in this two hour and 30 minute bloated mess of a superhero movie. Any other thoughts on this brief glimmer of hope in X-Men Apocalypse? Cool scene. I wish I knew anything about the stakes because I don't know these other characters. (laughs) Which is just why the time jump, I think, idea is so stupid and contrived and forced. Is like, why 
Like you could have, like, if you had a trilogy of movies in mind, you could have set up some characters to follow. And as we get to with Apocalypse in a minute, he chooses his followers. And so wouldn't it be compelling if somebody other than Magneto chose to become a follower of Apocalypse because of ideology uh, instead of Magneto for the rest of the movie is now purely emotionally driven, um, which feels so forced and so kind of anti what this character is about in other films. Yeah, emotionally driven into uh, the kind of genocide that defined his character, as we'll discuss later. (laughs) All right. So now we cut back to the X-Mansion, where Charles and Hank go to Cerebro to find out what's to do with this earthquake. Uh, They locate Moira in Egypt, who's still there. uh, And Charles is clearly still in love with her. That's a subplot in uh, X-Men First Class. Charles and Havoc take a trip to Langley, to the CIA headquarters, to visit Moira, where she works. One kind of cool moment is they do the classic thing where Professor X goes into a room and says, everybody, stop working. And everybody freezes in place, goes through, tells him to keep working or keep moving, you know, move again and then resume as if you know, nobody ever knowing that he was there. When thinking about it deeper, kind of fucked up and creepy, but a classic Professor X moment. I was gonna say it's, yeah, it's a very efficient power wielded unethically. No educator would advocate that. i think that'd be a really interesting lens to look at all of the x-men media and really rate um professor xavier as a professor first and foremost so since she doesn't remember you know so moira doesn't remember who charles is they met 20 years ago at this point because he wiped all her memories but she's aware of who charles xavier is through his um i guess scholastic work or social work Uh, moira explains that she was investigating apocalypse's whereabouts and history for some reason and goes into details about his motives and followers the four horsemen like the bible or the bible got it from him it's a line that's brought up um and (laughs) which is uh, i'm not even gonna touch that line um (laughs) He would give them special powers and aid him in destroying whatever they wanted. So now we learn about a fourth power that he has. He can enhance the power of mutants, core power of what he does. And that's how yeah, he likes his followers and makes them strong. Now we cut back to Egypt and one of my favorite scenes in the movie, Storm brings Apocalypse to her home and she has a poster of Mystique who she considers to be her hero. Something that was brought up about 20 minutes ago, 12 scenes ago. Apocalypse then <laughs> Apocalypse then places his hand on the TV to catch himself up on the last few thousand years with the most classic X-Men line ever. Storm asks, "What are you doing?" Oscar Isaac goes and touches the TV and says, "Learning." As we see a flash of Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, nuclear weapons, Soviets marching, American troops. This is like got to be one of my top 10 least favorite tropes of like just getting images of war. And now I hate humanity or I'm learning what things are all about. Like just ugh. The, the fifth element. <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen this before in a better movie yet again. <laughs> And so this is how Apocalypse gets his new mission. He realizes that humanity has lost his way without him. The monkeys have the weapons. The weak are now ruling the world, and he's got to do something about it. And his plan involves uh, species genocide. I was always, just, always an admirable plan. Uh, <laughs> great, I was great, just thinking about the uh, alternative to this movie, just focusing on Apocalypse's main character, and I'm thinking of like an Encino Man style 
movie where it's like he's been, you know, in his cave or whatever forever. And then he's released and he's just like trying to figure out the modern era. I'm going to go and after we record, write this screenplay and submit it to all of the big producers. And I think that we've got our Encino apocalypse. He's going to help us rule the world as mutants, buddy. <laughs> and and Sabanurme and, and, and Sibanur. And Chino Boar. Ah, there's something there. <laughs> and we're going to get Brendan Fraser to star in it. It's going to be great. Yes, please. We'll bring, bring Polly Shore back. It'll be great. Sorry, that was an aside. Keep going, Connor. So this is where, God, what, 25 minutes, 30 minutes into the movie? We're finally learning our villain's main plan. Like I said, you don't got to be formulaic, but it certainly is a helpful place to start when you're structuring and writing a movie. Typically, we would know at this point pretty well what the villain's plans are, why he wants to do, or not even villain, just antagonist, the antagonistic force, why they're doing what they're doing, the goals that they want to do, and being set up how those goals come into conflict with the goals of our currently non-existent protagonist. Real yeah, 101 stuff. Could, would do well from, you know, going back to the foundations of storytelling. <laughs> <laughs> So after uh, Apocalypse is learning, he then chooses Aurora to give uh, Aurora to give her powers and added strength. He touches her, and I guess she becomes stronger. So the first mutant that he meets, he only picks four. So the first one that he meets already has one slot taken. Picks her. Now that's actually a pretty good pick. Weather manipulation is pretty is a pretty good power. So I guess lucky that he found her first. Ah. <sighs> Here we just keep going. So <laughs> now we're cutting back to the X-Mansion. Somehow Mystique and Nightcrawler get to the X-Mansion where they meet Jubilee, a very uh, well-known character from the 90s animated show who has nothing to do in this movie other than wear her signature yellow jacket. Nightcrawler meets Jubilee, Jean, and Scott, who I guess is now one of the gang. We haven't seen him in a while. Um, somebody who kicked off the movie is set up to be the protagonist and we just don't really see him. So now he's like, he's got his rented glasses. He's hanging out in the school and he is kind of that jock feels like that jockey kind of vibe where he's like, oh, let's, you know, let's ditch this you know, school and do something cool. So they decide to go to a mall because Nightcrawler has never been to a mall. He's from Germany. I guess there's no idea what a mall is. Maybe he spent his whole life in that box. Well, I'll be honest, we did have, uh, my family hosted some German exchange students in high, while I was in high school, and they were so fucking excited to go to an American mall. It was really weird, but really interesting. Yeah. All right, maybe I'll retract that point of Box Boy not knowing what a mall is. So they go to the mall, and I just got to bring up this scene. To Now, there was supposed to be a whole extra scene in this movie, like a mall 80s mall montage where all the young students go to the mall. And I think that would be kind of fun. You know, God forbid we have some fun scenes in this movie with characters kind of like enjoying themselves or doing some things. But no, the mall, mall, the mall montage is cut. However, in a little bit, we see that our characters are walking out of a screening of Return of the Jedi. Jubilee is saying that, well, you know, it's no... Uh, or the character basically saying, oh, it's no Empire. Empire's so dark, gritty, like it's so good. Arguments that we hear today, you know, that's what they're pulling from. And then Gene goes, well, we all know that the third movie is the worst. 
which is an absurd line to add to the trilogy, the, the end cap trilogy of your own movie that's terrible. Like, it's just so bafflingly stupid. Remember in Return of the Jedi when they were just like, this is fucking dumb. I don't. And then how many, in, in the reality of, the, you know, by 1983, how many movie trilogies existed where it was kind of common knowledge that the third one's always the worst? That feels like such a anachronistic 21st century kind of view of, of cinema. Like, I don't think a 17-year-old in 1983 would say that immediately coming out, out of Return of the Jedi. Amateurish self, like, or attempts at self-awareness that just comes across, like, once again, as, like, terrible writing. It j- it reminds me of a paper I turned in, in college where literally in the middle of a paragraph, I had written in parentheticals, this point sucks, revisit and I didn't even remove it from it. And I turned it in and my professor was like, what the fuck? <laughs> Why did you include this in it? And it was true. I was a lazy writer and I just didn't remove it. And I take full responsibility for that. Unlike the screenwriters of this film. You know, be one thing too, if it was like, they make that sly comment as like a self-effacing, self-deprecating, like slight against their own movie but then they achieved like greater heights than that criticism but it points out how weak the movie is in the movie and one thing that i i just thought of as we were talking about it this go round is that deadpool one came out in february of 2016 with this movie coming out that may so a movie that was already incredibly i think successfully self-aware and self-referential this movie tries to do it and fails utterly in one line (laughs) I'm so ignorant. Is Deadpool an X-Man? Really? I was I was wondering that this whole time too. I'm pretty comic illiterate, so that's interesting. Yeah, so he is I assume he's huh. been a part of the X-Men at some point. Yeah, he's been on like some alternate X-Men teams, but he was like never a student, like the classic lineup or classic kind of characters. But he is a mutant in the world of Marvel's X-Men. Interesting. And the Deadpool I had no idea. Roger. And the Deadpool movies pretty hilariously play with the canon inconsistencies. And so I think I think the first two are great. The first one, I think, is a little better, but the second one also is really strong, too. And so it, I just thought it was so funny that the meta X-Men character that they got right is, came out the same year that this one joke, I think, just... I can't even say... It doesn't ruin the movie, but it like really is just so bafflingly terrible. Terrible line. All right, that's my Return of the Jedi... <laughs> soapbox for this episode but i had to say it there's no way we could talk about apocalypse excellent apocalypse without bringing up that line it's that pronounced that it needs to be addressed yeah yeah so we cut back finally to berlin again where apocalypse and storm go to caliban's facility uh power number five i think we're at apocalypse has purple bubble teleportation power so he can teleport with big purple bubbles okay must be Um, nice (laughs) <laughs> must be must be nice. So they go to Caliban's facility to look for more powerful mutants. Caliban, which is a, a, an ability, Cali- he can like have mutant tracking kind of powers. Caliban draws his gun on Apocalypse, where Apocalypse just turns it to dust. He loves sand. Can't get over. It. You know, can't get enough of it. Um, as they step closer, Caliban is defended by Psylocke, played by Olivia Munn, who we met earlier in the movie. Psylocke is another kind of classic X Men character. Uh, and she is a mutant who has a metal sword and a purple psychic katana. 
For some reason, Apocalypse is incredibly impressed. He doesn't turn her to sand, but he gives her upgraded powers by making her katana more bright. Cool. In this scene, we also see Storm gets a new outfit. So add power number six to Apocalypse's resume, costume designer. All of his horsemen get pretty sweet digs. And I think with that, we learn all of Apocalypse's powers. I don't think he has any more powers than the six I've uh, we've discussed already. I might be wrong. Past Connor might prove present Connor wrong uh, when you listen to the back half of this recording. But I believe those are pretty much the only powers that we see in this movie. From Apocalypse. I suppose he also has the power to walk, you know, inconspicuously amongst, <laughs> well, the, the power to walk inconspicuously amongst, like, the citizens of Egypt while being, you know, a purple living god. <laughs> that's true. All right, we'll make that one number seven. But that's like a, pat on his character sheet, that's a passive power. Yes. So, for some reason, Psylocke, just because of uh, character recognition, now becomes the second horseman. And Psylocke also knows where to lead him to other mutants. So Psylocke leads Apocalypse and Storm to their next recruit, where they find Angel in an abandoned building. He's drinking, blasting Metallica, depressed, his wings still broken. So he's just all broken up. This character that we met half an hour ago, we're now seeing again for the second time where he gets just a few more lines. Apocalypse turns his wings into metal with uh, bladed feathers, and we meet in the, in the comics, this character becomes Archangel, uh, who has metal wings and is actually a pretty cool character. And that is comics accurate, where Angel does become, goes from the X-Men, and Angel's actually on the original lineup of the X-Men in the 60s uh, in the comics. And so he becomes one of Apocalypse's followers, which in the comics, pretty sure was like a really huge moment where this character turned evil. That, that wing transformation was dope. I was really into that. that Great really body... Cool. Great body horror, just like, yeah, some really great feathers to steal kind of, you know, your classic feathers to steal transformation. <laughs> All right. Now we get yet another character introduced to this movie in the next God scene. damn it. We are probably halfway through the movie now, probably close to 40, 50 minutes, hour in. We, we meet another character, Peter Maximov, a.k.a. Quicksilver, played by Evan Peters who was really great in Days of Future Past, where he was introduced in the last movie. He played a kind of side, an important but a side role. Now, brought back into this movie. He's watching news reports on Magneto because it turns out Magneto is his father. Uh, his mother comes downstairs and he pretends to be playing video games. She knows he, she was he was really watching the news. And Quicksilver has a, I guess for the past 10 years, he's been living in his mom's basement and holding on to the business card that Xavier gave him in days of future past. And he's finally deciding to cash that token in. And he runs to the X-Mansion. Now, we're back to Poland and Magneto. Wait, can we talk about the slow-mo yeah. save? Were you about to skip over the whole slow-mo save? That's coming That's up later. Oh. That's later. Yeah, we, we have already covered that. This is a weird time travel episode in which we are actually running backwards into our own past and, and uh, revisiting things that we've already done. This the days of the weird Butter with that Days of Future Past, definitely. Uh, podcast Days of Future Past. <laughs> a recording of Future Past. It's there getting go, me God. all disoriented, but not in all the good ways. Uh, I feel like we've tapped into some new insights. I have another idea, which I'll save for the end of the first half of this episode. Well, we're almost there because 
we return to Poland, where Magneto goes back to the factory to confront his coworkers who ratted him out and spoke to the police. He prepares to kill all of them in epic Magneto glory when the Purple Bubble Man interrupts him. Apocalypse has arrived in Poland with a decked-out Storm, Psylocke, and Angel. Now we get our you know, group of characters who just stand around and do nothing. That is pretty much, uh, maybe that's an eighth passive power that Apocalypse has. His followers just stand there and look around at their CG surroundings. Because these, they just stand behind him and don't really do or say anything or have any motivations whatsoever. And soon, unfortunately, Magneto will join this purple blob of just nothingness. Apocalypse activates one of his powers we talked about and sinks men into the ground. And then convinces Magneto to come with him. Magneto steps into the purple bubble and is teleported with everyone to Auschwitz. What's really great about the introduction of Magneto being a survivor of uh, a concentration camp in the original film is that it's and it's the beginning of the film, as I recall. It's how the entire franchise, this film franchise starts, is establishing that Magneto was a victim of um is a member of a, a polish jewish family i believe is brought into auschwitz and uh, is separated from his family the trauma of which sparks into motion his resistance to that kind of fascism uh it, it, it inspires him in his horror and his trauma to and his desperation as a child without even understanding what he's doing to fully realize his powers and bend literally bend the gates of auschwitz which doesn't save his family but establishes him as a powerful figure who is motivated by his own oppression uh, and his family's oppression. And that is what the X-Men is, metaphorically. The X-Men is about uh, oppressed minorities. That is what the comic franchise is about. And that's amazing. The problem here is that when when he is motivated to, to destroy these surroundings, uh, this memory of his past trauma... It is connected rather than his his metaphorical heritage uh, through experienced fascism and boiled down into basically, no, he's he within this fictional world (laughs) at at the location of Auschwitz was like basically like uh, 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 the reason that he's destroying it now is because it's cathartic to him to destroy it because of his family being murdered because he's a mutant. And like that separates the allegorical metaphor from the literal reality of this like no longer is it is it a statement about oppressed people under fascism now it's literally about the fictional version of this where being a mutant is the oppressed class and seeing someone destroy auschwitz on those terms feels a little bit like it's kind of insane it's it's like it, it 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 undermines like a lot of this movie undermines uh, the establishing concepts of the original franchise, which is strange because like most prequels go back and they retcon material. This deconstructs it and it makes it something else. This is about him remembering Auschwitz as now this newfound thing where like he's destroying it in this way that it's it's because he it's this cathartic vengeance for his family having been taken away from him because he's a mutant, not because mutants are an analog for universal oppression <laughs> so it's it's deconstructionist to the extent that it robs the original of all of its power as a metaphor 
And also not for nothing, like I'm, I'm, it, there shouldn't be Confederate monuments because that valorizes horrible things. Uh, and was really introduced in like the Jim Crow era to intimidate people. By contrast, Auschwitz, which is a site of consciousness that is a reminder, a national reminder, an international reminder, and a human reminder of a resonant recognition of shame. So to destroy it in this way while robbing it of its original context and applying it to this fictional context that he is a mutant, it all of it just seems so wrongheaded and backwards to me. I don't think I'm explaining that very well, but on the whole, I just think it mishandles the entire concept. Yeah, it completely mishandles. Yeah, I, you're exactly right. It mis- mishandles it and like by contextualizing it within the framework of this dumbass movie, <laughs> robs of it, it of any like attempt to to be, yeah, like a serious acknowledgement of this of this character. And there's supposed to be an uh, ironic thing about that too, right? Because like he's he's now become a tool of a demigod who it, whose want is to commit genocide. So he's manipulating a victim of genocide in his emotionally cathartic way where they're destroying a symbol of that only to further more genocide. It, it cheapens his whole character. It makes him look like a fucking idiot and that he's just only motivated by emotion, that there's no logic, like there's no depth to Magneto in this movie, which I think is just really tragic because he is one of the most sympathetic superhero characters ever in any medium show comic movie that exists because of Dave, all the reasons that you listed of why that opening scene in the first X-Men movie is just so incredible. And then he just destroys it. And it's so like this movie's so fucking cheap for how expensive it is. It's cl- every scene feels like they're on one set and that's it. They built the one set. They built the green screen tent. That's 30 feet by 30 feet. And that's it. That every, almost every scene feels like, maybe except for the X-Mansions, like the one exception and the scenes in Poland where they could probably shoot in Canada very cheaply. But like everything else feels like they're on a soundstage or a green screen set. And then he, it's, it just feels so cheap. Like it doesn't, it's like, okay, all this CG destruction's happening, but I give no shits. And you're just going against and like cheapening what's to come in this movie's timeline 15 years later. Right. And like (sighs) later on, he goes to try to do the same thing as what Apocalypse is doing. He's basically waging war against humans for the benefit of mutants. Don't you think that this would like this would naturally cause him to like the movie saying he's ruled by his emotional attachment to his own oppression. But for that to make him as the established victim of the Holocaust, (laughs) now a participant in this new genocide because of that overruling emotion robs that original character arc of all of its meaning. Yeah, I think you put that so perfectly, Dave. (sighs) Well, with that, Auschwitz is destroyed. And we then cut to Charles bringing Raven, Hank, Alex, and Moira down to Cerebro to try to find Eric. Um, Charles finds him as Magneto once again, now having joined Apocalypse and the Horsemen. He's also got his new digs on. And as Magneto speaks to Charles, Apocalypse sees the opportunity to link his mind to Xavier, which allows Apocalypse to get into Cerebro and connect to anyone he wants. You know, I'm more okay with this leap of logic than the double arrow kill. 
<laughs> a telepath telepathing through a telepath into a machine that I'm cool with that. But one arrow killing two people. No. <laughs> Apocalypse is inside Cerebro and he manipulates officials all around the world to launch all of the nukes into space. So that way humans and mutants cannot stop him. This reminded me of something that happened to me in college. Uh, I was in like a, a politics, like, but like relations course. And uh, I, I was a, obviously I was a history major and uh, secondary education minor. And uh, when you major in social studies, you uh, also major with a lot of uh, like football players, you know, and God, this one guy, his name was Chris Groove. He's great. Like whatever. Uh, he literally asked the professor, why can't we send our chemicals, our chemical waste into space? He literally asked that question. And I've never been able to, to like forget that. And, and this movie really shows you exactly what would happen if, if we did that. And it's just, it's beautiful. It's beautiful in a way that I never thought it would be. You know, I hope that your your uh, colleague felt validation if he saw this movie and went back to that moment. Or maybe he was in the writer's room when this was being made. I mean, this kind of detail both suggests they ran out of ideas. Or the movie suggests they had too many ideas. And then they, the movie goes and goes and does the whole, we're going to create a conflict that's literally just all the nukes across the world are going to go off. And that's the, that's the problem. That's the kind of conflict that's created when writers in a room and can't think of jack shit to put in a movie. And so, yeah. And this all powerful being can't, he just launches them into space. Like this movie feels so incredibly tiny. With the yeah. huge, even though the huge cast it has, it feels what is a global threat, what literally is a global threat by the end of the movie, feels so incredibly small that that's it's just such a great reeks. That's yeah. such a great way of putting it. Right. It's like we're traversing the world. We have an ensemble cast of like superheroes, and yet the plot feels so low stakes and so small and just so uninventive. Well, it's it's the highest stakes of all in the sense that it's like now we are now we have this foe that has tricked everyone into disarming the world. You know, he's launched all the nukes into space. Now they're inaccessible and everything. And now we have to face this threat. But to your credit, Christine, in spite of that, you don't feel the weight of any of it. Uh, yeah, There's another I mean, hour of the movie. <laughs> it's high stakes, like in concept, maybe, but like not right. in execution. <laughs> I was exactly. like, oh, yeah. like, like when a viewer is part participating in an action movie and just shrugs and goes, yeah, okay, I guess that makes sense. That's a terrible response. <laughs> like you don't <laughs> want that to happen. You want people to feel like, you know, invested. Well, as we push further down into hell, there is less and less investment. I guess the movie goes on. So all the nukes are launched into space. Wonderful. Awesome apocalypse. <laughs> Um, good for you. Charles, you know, you could have probably just had everybody kill themselves. Wouldn't that be more effective if you just had everybody on Earth just ex commit suicide? Wouldn't that achieve your goal too? Kind of makes an awful lot more sense. <laughs> 
but it's not as dramatic as yelling to the heavens again as he does. Anyway, so Charles is overwhelmed by Apocalypse's power. Uh, I actually think the scene looks kind of cool as like you see Apocalypse's mind like take over the Cerebro room. Like there's some cool visuals there. Xavier then orders Havoc to destroy Cerebro, which he does by shooting a giant blast from his chest. So then as they're destroying Cerebro, Apocalypse and his crew in the big purple bubble pop up in the X-Mansion just to steal Charles. Magneto pulls him from his chair, you know, pulls you know his uh, wheelchair, pulls him into the bubble and they take him away. Uh, as they're trying to take Professor X away, Havoc releases a blast uh, that misses Apocalypse and the crew because they disappear and hits the X-Jet, which Mystique did bring up earlier in the movie. It's kind of weird to have like a super-powered war jet inside the basement of a school. Well, it turns out that Mystique was right because Havoc's blast basically sets off not a nuclear reaction, but one pretty damn close to it. But fortunately for our crew, there is a Quicksilver X Machina where Quicksilver just arrives at the school and we get a new rendition of the really awesome Quicksilver slow-mo running scene uh, that was in Days of Future Past. But in my opinion, this one is far inferior. I'm sorry, Quicksilver is not faster than the speed of light than an explosion rocketing off. This is another example where I was so wowed by this scene, but I was coming at it from a position of not having seen Days of Future Past. So to me, I was like, this is fun. Great soundtrack. Uh, I like, you know, the guy who plays Quicksilver. It just that it seemed fun. That definitely got me a little more awake while I was watching this movie. It goes on a little too long. It's like, okay, we get it. You don't have to show us saving every single uncredited extra in this movie. We we get the picture, but I was into yeah. it. Well, and the tone just feels so off. Where like Christine, you brought up how this movie could be kind of quirky and out there and just balls of the wall crazy in like a fun way. And this scene's trying to tap into that energy of like, isn't it wacky that he's saving all these people from an explosion that's going to incinerate all of these children? But, oh, he has to pick up the, you know, he has to put the dart in the right place. Like, that is all very Quicksilver, and that works in Days of Future Past. I don't really want to spoil that scene because you haven't seen it, and I want you to be surprised by it. But, like, the stakes are so much lower in that scene than literally children getting incinerated by a warplane in a basement of a school. If the tone were more consistent, I could have had that that sort of fun, like that fun, cheeky levity through the whole movie. Yeah. I don't, yeah. That is a really cute bulldog. I will admit that. The pizza flapping. So Quicksilver saves everybody. Yay. No children died in this explosion except for Havoc. So Quicksilver is able to save everybody. But Cyclops' brother, Havoc, who is an original cast member from the first movie, Conveniently, as this is happening, Scott, Gene, Nightcrawler, Jubilee arrive, come back from the mall to the destroyed X-Mansion. So this movie also has tons and tons of conveniences. After this explosion happens, uh, military helicopters arrive and they start descending. Moira approaches them, thinking that uh, they're just part of another agency. She's CIA, so she tries to get them to stop. Turns out that William Stryker, played by Josh Hellman, now William Stryker's a huge character from the first three X-Men movies, um, specifically X2, um, you know, comes out of here and his men fire sonic blasts that incapacitate all of the young mutants, except for Scott, Gene, and Nightcrawler, who are 
off in the rubble trying to look for his brother. Gene manages to keep them hidden by manipulating one of Stryker's men to make them invisible. Stryker then captures Mystique, Moira, Hank, Quicksilver. Then Nightcrawler, Scott, and Gene teleport onto the helicopter. Oh, surprise! There's an electrical lining with it. And they're stuck in the helicopter as they get taken to a facility, presumably the same one in X2 and X-Men Origins Wolverine that's in Canada. So there's just a whole lot going on in this movie. And now we're diverting into a whole other part that's totally unrelated to Apocalypse. And it's now this like prison escape kind of scene. Stryker takes everyone to his facility, traps Moira and the mutants in this room. I think the room looks kind of cool, like the green neon kind of going up in the column. <sighs> and Hank has remutated into Beast because he takes meds. You know, he actually jokes up his meds at home, a, ser- you know, a serum that keeps him looking like Nicholas Holt instead of looking like a blue creature. Uh, Scott, Gene, and Nightcrawler sneak by all the guards until they're spotted, which forces Nightcrawler to teleport them again. While all of this is happening, Apocalypse brings Xavier and the Horsemen to Egypt and uses Charles to send a message to everybody on the planet. But Charles also hides a little message just for Gene. So Xavier really fits into Apocalypse's whole master plan where he's going to transfer his consciousness into Xavier so he can be a telepath and he can control everybody on planet Earth. So finally, like an hour and 40 minutes into this movie, whatever the time is, we finally figure out what the hell Apocalypse is trying to do. Thoughts on any of the garbage I just rambled for about like five minutes on. <laughs> Every time I try to think about what's going on in this movie and try to follow this trajectory, I feel like I stood up too fast. And you get that thing where you can't really see and there's all these dots and you're just like, well, better just stand here for a second and take stock because I don't know what the fuck is going on. Your brain gets like the the credit time space time continuum portal treatment that opens the movie but it's just like constantly going on in your in your brain (laughs) i don't have too many thoughts on these parts either so in the cell peter admits to mystique you know quicksilver missed the mystique that magneto is his father and he was hoping to be able to tell him so this is like what the d or e plot kind of going on now Then the three mutants trying to break him out come across a room, a chamber that has something locked up, angry and growling. That's not a creature. It's a person. As the guards approach, Gene opens the the kind of box, this chamber, unleashing Weapon X, a.k.a. Wolverine. Dave, I put audibly sigh in my notes and you took care of it for me. So thank you for that. (laughs) So not only does this movie cram tons of plot lines in and characters it also includes the wolverine which significantly breaks continuity of the original x-men movies first meeting wolverine in 1999 when that or 2000 whatever year that movie's supposed to take place but no gene and cyclops met wolverine in 1983 and set him free how does this happen like was there like a contract mix up? And they were like, oh, fuck. Like they wrote the whole movie. They shot the whole movie. And they were like, oh, shit. Hugh Jackman is technically in this movie's contract. So we need to like shoehorn him in. Or it's like, got to be word of mouth. Ma- it's got to be word of mouth. So like, that, oh, oh, my God, yes, Hugh Jackman. Or like, yeah, they'll see on like, oh, Hugh Jackman's in it. But nobody like he's not in any of the trailers or he's not. Because he's can't he cameoed in first class. He he oh. is the lead of Days of Future Past. Oh, okay. So I think part of it was like I mean everyone loves 
I wouldn't say everybody loves Hugh Jackman's Wolverine, but the general public, that is a, an incredibly um, iconic performance um, and draws because people plays, to it. Who plays young Wolverine? Oh, so they well, meet you, him as a grown ass adult in like. Well, Hugh Jack, well, Wolverine also doesn't, he ages very slowly. Got it. So he's like hot, 40, and ripped for like 60 years. <laughs> Got it. And then Logan happens, and then he's old and broken. Right. <laughs> he just suddenly gets old and broken. Okay. Uh, okay. So I guess in a way it makes more sense if he appears in the previous two movies that came before this. Once again, my ignorance is showing itself but still it was it was dumb as fuck but he's but he goes from the future to the past in the in days of future past so that makes sense because he's been on the team for decades at that point this is just shoehorning in a famous person to make money and it, i guess it did i guess it worked and gene gray telepathically like incepts not to bring up a previous episode incepts- i was thinking about that too and like gives him like a, she she reaches into the, the personhood of of Wolverine, a person she doesn't know, and and gives him this idea that's going to fuel him uh, as he as he goes about freeing himself from this facility and thus freeing them. And then Cyclops says something effective like, like basically like winking to the audience like I doubt we'll ever see him again. And then they do an X one, and it's like. Cyclops doesn't recognize him. And even Jean Grey is like, oh, who's this new guy? You looked into his soul. (laughs) That doesn't make sense. And like, that's the thing about this movie again. Like, it's the only prequel I've never seen do the opposite of a retcon. It goes back and it obliterates all context for the original thing that is built around. It's bizarre. It's such a strange choice. And if they just kept it all in the 60s, None of this would have happened if it was always late twenty somethings, early thirty somethings, Xavier and Magneto. Then they could have avoided all of this. Keep it in the swing of sixties. I think that would have been the way to go for the franchise. I think again, though, the problem is, is that they had the content already for the origin movies, and so they're like, "Let's rebrand where we can," and it happened to do something shitty like this, where it just kills everything we know and love. There was already an Origins Wolverine movie, and this undoes that. Yes. <laughs> so I'm. It is the same writing team. <laughs> what happened? I think there's some interesting uh, mystery behind the making of all these movies. They should come out with a movie that's like, what time traveling portal were some writers trapped in while they were trying to get this movie together? And what, yeah, just like, tell us what shenanigans they were up to while conceiving this movie, because I can guarantee it'll be far more exciting than what was actually produced. The making of X-Men Apocalypse colon Days of Future Trash. Days of Future Trash. (laughs) Yes. 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 And the episode right there. Unfortunately for us, I still have a page and a half of notes to go, of plot to go. (laughs) Um, Wolverine helps him escape. He kills a whole bunch of people. It's also PG-13. It's just fucking pointless. Just watch our Logan episode. Watch Logan. Ignore anything with Wolverine in this movie. Uh, Apocalypse. We're back to Egypt. Everybody escaped from Canada. Oh, and they and they found a jet. They have a teleporting mutant, but they they need a, a fighter jet. That Moira McTaggart, a CIA agent, can fly. 
That's a, that's not. It doesn't get close to the arrow double kill, but it's on the la- it's on the same ladder of unbelievability. Anyway, we cut to Apocalypse, just leveling Cairo. He can also do what Magneto does, but I guess only with sand. That's my main takeaway. Is if he's in a sandy place, he can cause waves of devastation. But he needs Magneto to affect the magnetic poles. Uh, so he destroys yeah, part of Egypt. Because yeah. sure. <laughs> and he needs to recreate his own pyramid. Not like there are any other pyramids in Egypt that he could hijack or carve out. He has the power to move sand and walls. <laughs> so he has to make his own brand new pyramid, gets Magneto to manipulate the magnetic poles to cause global destruction. I don't know if they ever say magnetic poles, but that's what this description says. So that, I guess, is right. Hmm. Apocalypse then tells Charles that he has the most important role in his plan to transfer his consciousness into Xavier so he can control everyone on the planet. I guess that's revealed now. Moira flies the mutants to Cairo to rescue Xavier and defeat Apocalypse. They have a teleporter, Nightcrawler, but they still have to fly. Raven, Mystique, the other mutants tell her about the old team, and Mystique realizes that she can be an inspiration. Her and Hank are the only ones left, but Jean says, Mystique, you're a hero. But she doesn't see herself that way, and she puts her head down, and the scene ends. Oh my God, there's so much of this where Mystique is being like, I'm bad. I'm just no good, shucks. Uh, this hero stuff, it's just not for me. I'm the worst. And like the whole team being like, no, you're great. You inspired everyone, even Storm. You know, who's on the villains team? <laughs> I'm just so over Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> and if you watch Dark Phoenix, she is just, so, I mean, she tries to wear the blue makeup the least amount possible. And it looks so bad in the next one that clearly they were like, I'm only going to sit in the chair for one hour. That's all you get from me. I I don't know. I'm just so, she just, she does not need to be in this movie. I guess plot wise she does, but really you could have cut out probably 40% of the characters and probably had more or less the same movie. It's also a thing where not to jump ahead, like she and Magneto are paired with this, the rest of this team in shutting down uh, like a genocidal demigod who wants to kill off humans in favor of mutants and then in the original thing they're teamed up doing just that and in days and in first class you they set the seeds for why mystique wants to be with magneto and like they're all on the same team for now but you can see the the fractures appear throughout that whole movie of of the, the rip that happens at the end it's just so so fucking stupid I mean, the fact that characters are constantly changing sides and, like, doing the opposite of what they said they would never do, like, that doesn't surprise me a lot. I feel like, you know, these characters are multifaceted, but also when you have all these powers, I think the point is, is, like, you can be driven to do all sorts of shit, good or bad. And so the, the constantly shifting allegiances doesn't really surprise me, but... It's still Both the mythology so tangled as the X-Men that they did themselves. It just makes no sense. Yeah. It's also like really confusing because there is so much deep history between Mystique and Magneto. And mm. you know, in in the prequels, in the, the originals, and in uh, in the comics or whatever. And so, like, you have you have so much that you could be giving Mystique. You could actually be having Jennifer Lawrence, like, 
perform, you know, do something actually like worthwhile to have Jennifer Lawrence in the movie. Like if you have, if you can, if you bring in fucking Mystique and Nightcrawler and you don't do anything with them other than have them just like meet, fuck you. You know, just fuck you. There's, there's absolutely no reason to do it if you're not going to do it well. And like, once again, <laughs> here we go. A left storyline that they didn't even continue into Dark Phoenix. Like, because it had the jump 10 years. Unreal. Unreal. So we're approaching, I guess we're in the third act now. We're approaching the final showdown. Uh, the team reaches Cairo. Beast. And the young trio prepare to battle while Quicksilver and Raven, who morphs into her natural mystique form, head toward Magneto. So the heroes split up to accomplish different goals. Essentially, Mystique and Quicksilver are going to stop Magneto by talking him down. Uh, the team is going to distract, uh, the fighters are going to distract the horsemen to try to get Nightcrawler into the pyramid to save Professor X, kind of the setup for the last battle. Oh boy. <laughs> Mystique and Quicksilver reach Magneto, who I guess could not hear the giant metal warplane arrive. And he's just in his Zen ball of magnetism. Uh, They try to convince him to fight for good, with Mystique assuring that he has more family than he realizes. Quicksilver's about to tell Magneto of their relation, but holds back. The one moment of pointless, the one moment of restraint that this movie shows is utterly pointless. Why isn't Mystique like, hey, like, that's kind of the whole reason I brought you here. This could really turn things around. And he's like, "Uh, I'll tell you later. (laughs) Makes no sense. (sighs) Storm, Angel, Psylocke, the horsemen come down to fight. Storm hauls lightning towards Scott. He deflects it. Psylocke has blades against Beast. Angel tries for another rematch against Nightcrawler. Traps them, they fight, they punch, blah, 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 blah. Nightcrawler eventually... And again, if you look away from the screen for 30 seconds, you'll be lost. You just... Yeah, exactly. So Nightcrawler succeeds in trapping Angel, heads into the pyramid to get Charles out of the middle of this transfer process. So they're on the tap. We're back at the beginning of the movie. There's there's tables and Apocalypse needs a big pyramid to transfer his consciousness into another person. They and the other heroes make it back to the jet, but Angel and Psylocke reach them and try to break in. Uh, Nightcrawler gets everybody out of the jet as it crashes to the ground with Spenda, Psylocke jumping to safety. So they do save Professor X, but the most infuriating part of this whole movie is through the transfer process, Xavier loses his hair. <laughs> it's not through male pattern baldness. It's not through just shaving your head because you want it. It's because a magical mutant demigod wanted to put his consciousness into your body. And so mutant magic made you lose your hair. I just, I, I, I just, I literally shouted in the theater. I'm pretty sure when that happened, I just went, what? <laughs> How does it bother you, though? But, like, of course him losing his hair is going to be, like, because of some epic thing. Or do you think the epic thing is just not epic enough? Why do you need to explain why someone's bald? Well, like, I guess that's my point. Is like, why does there need to be some plot, some contrived plot reason that yes, a character agreed. needs to be bald? It is contrived, but it like, I guess visually it's like the turning point in his character, right? When he's fully embodies and sh- like is what we all think of as mature doc- or Professor X. 
I suppose in that sense, yeah, it metaphorically addresses that the gravity of the end of this trilogy is what set him into motion as the guy that we understand in the original trilogy. But for that to be the only consistency that it carries over, like, it's like, okay, well, you know, uh, Wolverine, yeah, we met him before, but we're not going to talk about that ever again until we see him later. Magneto, who's, who's character is is a vessel for uh, a, an analog for a, a kind of righteous but still compromising violence against oppression we're going to undermine that entirely by making him a victim specifically of being a mutant as opposed to the metaphorical stand-in which is what the series is about we're going to destroy all that but the one thing that is really important is how charles xavier went bald and we're going to make sure that we nail that it's such a strange priority by contrast to everything else this movie gets wrong. Also, like, I swear to Christ, somewhere they had already said it's so that, like, Cerebro would work better. I swear to God. I think that's was- right. Yeah. I, like, that had to have happened at some point. They said that, right? Or did I just... Is I that think, just I think what I, I That rings a bell, yeah. And then... I know that we keep harping on the fact that like it completely obliterates what canon actually was, but like the way that X1 picks up with like the fucking mutant registry and the whole point is being like, we're still in the shadows. Like, yeah, you know, but like we're in the shadow. Wait, what? <laughs> what? Yeah. Just none of it. <laughs> they just didn't care. None of it makes sense. And I think if, if this led to him being put in the wheelchair, then I think that's like a, a more physical character mm. turn moment. But going bald is so fucking limp of like a storytelling decision to make. It's like, oh, he's bald now. Okay, cool. It feels like the Phantom Menace thing where it's like, the purple lightning is what made Palpatine look like a freak, not the yeah. evilness. And it's like, well, it would have been so much more interesting if you just let me make that connection by myself. He looks like an evil monster man because he's a fucking evil monster man, not because Mace Windu <laughs> shot purple lightning off of his lightsaber back into Sidious. Exactly. <laughs> oh, man. You know, we always find a way to bring the prequels back in, don't we? When it's Star bad, Wars, I can pull it off. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you no, know, there's, there's a podcast idea there. All right, let, 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 let's just wrap this infuriating nightmare up. So speaking of infuriated, Apocalypse is pissed. His plans have been foiled. And Quicksilver, in kind of a cool sequence, uh, punches him a lot in slow-mo. But I guess Apocalypse can move faster than the speed of light, so he moves his eyes and grabs him and breaks his leg. Or traps his foot, breaks his leg, orders Psylocke to execute him. Psylocke uses her katana instead to slash Apocalypse's throat. (gasps) What? Turns out it's Mystique in Disguise. Uh, and Apocalypse like, ha, I have a healing agent. What a stupid plan for Mystique. Just a side note. <laughs> like, really? One metal sword cutting through the throat of a demigod? Whatever, we don't have to talk about that anymore. Storm, and so Apocalypse then grabs Mystique by the throat. Could have turned her into sand. The one time he could have used his power to destroy someone who's actually a threat. She, He didn't use sand. He didn't put her into a wall. No, he tries to choke her. Hubris. Uh, Hubris. Learning. Uh, <laughs> for those listening, I reached into the um, Zoom camera. Oh, that really <laughs> sold it, yeah. Storm watches as Apocalypse is killing her hero, something that is not hap- uh, an idea that has not been threaded in about 90 minutes or longer. And she is pissed. 
so the others are fleeing to a random building on the soundstage for safety. Charles realizes that he's still connected to Apocalypse and decides to fight him because this movie just has to keep going because they still have a shared connection through that transfer process. Um, this is kind of a cool scene. And I remember this being in the trailer where Charles, since it's the mental realm, they're not bound by the physical limitations of, uh, he's not bound by the physical limitations of his body. So he can get real big and he can crunch apocalypse in his hand, but apocalypse is a telepath too, or strong mentally. So there's this internal consciousness battle and, you know, they're trying to kill each other. It seems so interesting. Cause it's like, Oh wow. This is like the realm of the mind. Like this is like, Frey Krueger's universe where he has command over everything because it's his realm. But then Apocalypse is basically just like, I can be a little bit bigger than that. <laughs> Shove you around. And then he does. A cool idea, just not executed well at all. Magneto then turns on Apocalypse after realizing what side he's meant to fight on. He has a turn of heart. He's already destroyed so many world landmarks. He's killed millions of people already. Maybe even a billion people by disrupting the magnetic poles and just earthbending the shit out of every continent. But he has a change of heart. He fights for good. He throws two I-beams down that form an X, like the X-Men. Huh? That kind of right? got me a little bit, actually. That was kind of neat. It's kind of neat. You know, it's classic X-Men territory. He just throws lots of metal at Apocalypse. Apocalypse just turns it to lava, I guess, or sand. I don't know. Charles then reaches... God, I'm so done with this movie. Charles then reaches Jean and tries to get her to tap into the fight because she's just sitting there wiping his bloody nose, basically. Um, she manages to unleash the full Phoenix Force. The second time in this series we see the Phoenix Force be unleashed. And that's what stops the apocalypse, I guess. The Phoenix Force, something we don't know, something that's never explained, something that never will be explained in any X-Men movie, is able to stop apocalypse. And hey, just because. Because let's wrap just, it up. Let's end, let's end this movie. Let's just get rid of him. Let's wrap it up. Hey, we got to set the seeds for the next movie because we got to do Simon Kinberg's got to do Dark Phoenix again. As Apocalypse weakens, we finally see that it's kind of Oscar Isaac under there and he tries to escape. But Storm, after watching all this brutality, after allowing millions of people to die, her home city gets annihilated. Just want to remind everybody of that. But no, it's choking mystique that gets her to turn on her former master. As she weakens, Storm uses lightning to prevent him from leaving. Apocalypse deteriorates until he disintegrates. After the battle, Psylocke just walks away. That's the end of our third act. That is the, uh, the climax of the emotional masterpiece that is X-Men <laughs> Apocalypse. It just, they're on a soundstage. There's just no other way. Like, I think what Marvel generally has been nailing over the past, like, couple years is, like, making films, even though you know they're all shot on green screen, making them feel lived in, feel bigger, feel like actual, like, people are about and, like, they're in real places, generally. It's kind of how I feel about a lot of the end of Marvel movies. But this just feels like green screen, soundstage, our actors, and there's no stakes, even though you're seeing continents get torn apart. I think back to your earlier point about what if it was just about Professor X's students and it was mostly, con the story was mostly contained within 
the X mansion and all of that, because all that actually looked pretty good. I mean, obviously the house that they were using was a physical space. There's probably a shit ton of green screen even there, but like it felt that felt lived in that felt kind of an interesting space to explore the characters of young people just learning about their powers and working together and all the classic Mm -hmm. elements of an adventure film. Uh, But yeah, I totally agree with you. Everyone, everything else looked like shit. Yeah, real bad. It's also like, okay, this movie is almost the same movie as X3. And it's, X3 is universally hated. Why the fuck would they think? Like, you know what? (laughs) Let's do it again. But like trick people, create two good movies. Be like, we learned, we learned. And then just throw it again. Like people are literally disintegrating again. (laughs) All Like in uh, X3, all of fucking San Francisco was gone. People were literally disintegrating. (laughs) Like, like, and it just wraps the fuck up again. People lose their powers. You're like, oh, everything's fine. I guess. Again? Fucking again? Who's any and you know whose fault this is? Mine. Ours. <laughs> this is our fault. You know, sh- fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice. Fuck me. Shame on me. You know? It's also just one of those things where at the end of this movie, yeah, like it's it's this is an event that like there's no nuclear weapons on Earth. The magnetism of our planet has been disrupted. I guess it's like what, like 35. 30 years later or so, we get the original X-Men movie and it's still an exclusive mutant school and they're still like an oppressed class after they saved the fucking world. I mean, it's only like a mutant, but even so. It's only like 15 years, 83 to 99. There you go. Okay. Yeah, it's like people are going to, uh, but I guess it's one of those things where like we learned in the beginning of this movie, mutants were discovered in 1973. We have a selective memory that goes back, I don't know, 15 minutes. What are mutants? Whatever well, mind. And Christine, I love the point you brought up about this like idea of young kids in school. That's so many great X-Men stories. What you just described is so many classic great X-Men comics, cartoons, like shows. And they could have just like stuck to the roots of like what kind of works about this. Instead, just pushing it to just be the next generic big CG battle at the end that nobody gives a shit about. I feel like I'm also, so I had been watching a lot of Doom Patrol and that kind of was all the scenes in the X-Mansion were giving me kind of Doom Patrol vibes, which mm. probably makes sense. But yeah, like stories, conti- they they do a lot of adventures, but a lot of the interpersonal conflict exists within like their their living space, which makes for like some really interesting, yeah, um, uh, complex characterizations and like interpersonal. Everything stuff. that this movie doesn't have. Everything that mm-hmm. this movie has, does not have. And it has Brendan Fraser. And yeah. A big plus also. I'll go on my right. final episode of the season one of Doom, Doom Patrol rant later. Final episode was so shitty, so bad. Mm-hmm. But that's for another episode. All right, well, let's uh, let's uh, lock this one up. The team is now home. Eric and Jean rebuild the school magically through mutant powers. Everything's put back in its place, even though a giant fireball of nuclear war destroyed, the fighter jet battery destroyed everything, incinerated everything. Uh, but they can't bring back Scott's brother, which is never brought up again. So the school's rebuilt. Storm 
asks Quicksilver if he's going to tell Magneto that he's Magneto's son. He says he will eventually. And Storm just decides to stick around, too. Although Charles asks Eric to stay, he chooses to leave, but remains friends with Charles. Goodbye, old friend. You killed millions of people. Goodbye. I feel like so many X-Men movies end that way of like the goodbye, old friend. It's like, God, you cut like he's a mass murder. I mean, Magneto in this timeline is already doing kind of like interesting like stuff of being like a murderer. But this is just how could you ever let him walk away from this? Goodbye, old friend. I'm sure you won't be corrupted by the notion of genocide ever again. Oh, wait a minute. 15 years later, we're going to have another trilogy. Charles then goes to the danger room where Mystique is going to train Cyclops, Jean, Storm, Quicksilver, and Nightcrawler. And they're in somewhat classic looking X-Men attire. Simulation begins where they must battle Sentinels. There's an end credit scene that has no importance at all because this trilogy, this series just ends. And that's X-Men Apocalypse. I'm fucking done. I'm just done. (laughs) Glad I never have to see another Brian Singer movie again. Amen. (laughs) Or at least a new Brian Singer movie again. I should clarify well any final thoughts we've been going for we had technical difficulty that made this episode go even longer for us in real time so any i don't know how long this episode has been going but if you've stuck around this far thank you so much for listening to our discussion on x-men apocalypse uh buttercrew any final thoughts or things you want to add about this horrible thud and dud truly a a thud well i said before earlier in the episode it made me definitely want to watch the first two that came before because those look like a lot of fun. So it looks like a lot of Michael Fass, a lot of James Mack. So I'm all about it. And they're on Disney Plus. All of the X-Men movies are on Disney Plus. So if you feel the need to watch Apocalypse for yourself, but I can guarantee you seeing is not believing. <laughs> this is a podcast that has covered the movie Food Fight before. I uh, maintain that that is the worst movie ever made. I would rather watch Food Fight than watch this again. It's at least shorter, at the very least. <laughs> that is an intense accusation of sorts. It was just mind-bogglingly like frustrating. Like by the end of this movie, I was actually like kicking my feet like a child throwing a tantrum on the couch, shouting end at my television. I uh Connor, you you've really you've really uh You've really set the stage for this being a terrible movie since we started this podcast, but I really, I had no idea what I was in for, and I would not recommend it to anybody, uh, unless you're a diehard completist fan of the franchise, but um, yeah, what a what a tough watch. <laughs> you know, maybe I'll, Dave, after that, I'll retract it. For you, seeing was believing after hearing me trash this movie for three years now. I guess it was, and I should have just believed you. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry I um, brought this upon all of us, but I had fun talking about it, and I hope you all did too. Christine, if you do watch First Class and Days of Future Past, please report back. Yeah, hell yeah. I'll keep you guys posted on my X-Men journey. That movie is good. They even have the nerve to use the original animated theme in the in the <laughs> opening like Fox logo. Ugh. I thought I wasn't going to bring up that point, but here we are. Well... From our computer to your phone or wherever you listen to Butter With That, thank you for tuning in. We hope that you check out other podcasts on the Movie John Podcast Network. Uh, Please follow us on all the socials, Butter With That One on Twitter, Butter With That on Instagram and Facebook. And you can always shoot us an email at ButterWithThatPodcast at gmail.com.
gmail.com. It's been a while since we've gotten an email. So if you have thoughts on the X-Men, thoughts on trilogies where the third movie's the worst, send them our way. We'd love to hear about it. Or if you have love for Oscar Isaac, I'll always read about and talk about love for Oscar Isaac. I'm happy that he's getting a uh, redemption arc as Moon Knight. So at least that right has been wronged. I mean, that wrong has been right. I don't know. It's late. I'm tired. (laughs) Yeah, I'm excited for Moon Knight in a couple weeks or two weeks, I guess, from this recording. Well, I hope you'll all be learning from this podcast and not watching X-Men Apocalypse ever. From all of us here at Butter With That, have a good whatever. This has been a Movie John podcast.